0: Anything that can be called redemption in Scripture. As God redeems, He exalts the humble and lowly people and humbles those who are proud and self exalting. At Exodus, He does it with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's arrogant and proud, sets himself in opposition against God. God brings him down in a powerful way, and it slaves. That are exalted to a place of power and glory. They come out of Egypt free. They come out of Egypt plundering the Egyptians, with carting off their treasures, their gold and their silver. Later we find proud and strong Goliath, right? This is the guy that we would have betted on if we would have been there in that valley. Like this is the guy that's going to win the battle. And yet it's he who ends up face down dead in the valley and a small shepherd boy named David who stands as the victor on the battlefield. Still later you see King Saul whose name means high or tall guy, right? And he is the one that is brought down because of his arrogance and pride. And David is the one that's anointed up to be king and he's enthroned. You see it later in the, Old, in the New Testament. Where it's those who are humble who come as children And the image there being weak and dependent and needy people coming to Jesus, not in a tall stance saying, look at what I have done or look at what I can do or look at all these good attributes about myself, but these people who come acknowledging that they come like children, it is they who are given sight. And yet it's the boastful, the proud, the educated, the strong that are left in their blindness. Scripture's insistence that this reversal takes place as a consequence of redemption should serve as a warning to those of us that are listening to it. This is especially true of the redemption we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that God has redeemed. In this season, we recognize that God has sent His Son for the purpose of redeeming fallen humanity. But because it's a redemption, that also means there's a great reversal coming from that redemption. Christmas calls us that Je- not only to remember that Jesus came to die for sinful humanity, but it calls us to remember that the redemption that He works has all kinds of ramifications for the here and now, for our daily life. Now, in the case of Mary's Magnificat, that's what we're studying today, the ramification of redemption is that all who arrogantly place their trust in things other than God will be humbled, and those who humbly trust in Him will be exalted. It's a beautiful poem. I I, I love this song. I've read it many times. I, uh, I read it sometimes devotionally at Christmas just to make sure that my heart is in the right posture. But here's what I think that if we read the Magnificat in light of Christmas and in light of the redemption that Jesus has worked, here's what I think the Magnificat will do. I think it reminds us that the right posture of the heart is one of weakness that looks to God's strength, powerlessness that acknowledges God's kingship, and a hunger that can be satisfied by God alone. So, the question that these few verses are going to ask us is Are you weak? Do you recognize your own powerlessness? Do you recognize your own hunger and thirst? And if you don't, then you do not have the right posture of worship this Christmas. That's what this text wants to bring us to. Now, Mary's Magnificat is the first of four praises in Luke's gospel. You have the Magnificat, you have the benedictus you 've got the uh, the uh, the I forget what it's called, but basically the Gloria we just sang it right uh, that the angels sing, and then you 've got the nuke and so this is the first of four of these praises that are acknowledging that Jesus has come as a prom as a fulfilled promise of what God has said would happen in redemption. The magnificat is a Latin word that means to magnify it comes from the first lines of mary 's Praise, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, in the context of it all, Mary has just heard from the angel Gabriel that God has sent a son and that she would bear a son who would grow up to be the son of the Most High. He would be the one who sits on his father's throne, David, and he will reign over the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So she's just heard this message. She's on her way to see Elizabeth. When she sees Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby jumps inside of her room, leaps and kicks, because this is the forerunner of the Messiah. He recognizes that this is the mother of the one who's going to give birth to the Messiah. Elizabeth praises what God is doing through Mary. And then Mary opens up in her own spirit-filled worship. Now, in the first few verses, I think we, we see Mary's own personal praise to God. And then it branches out in the next half of the, of the song about what he's doing in the whole world. So it, it begins with this personal acknowledgement. Here's what God has done for me. And then it branches out to talk about what God is doing all over the world. What God is doing throughout all human history. Now, I, as I'm reading the the Magnificat, I'm 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 hearing it with the drum beats that are filled with Old Testament scriptures. You just hear it; just sounds like a psalm, for example. It sounds like something that David might have wrote. It sounds like Hannah's song all the way back in First Timothy one, where you're where you're listening to this drumbeat. And I think the point of recognizing those echoes and understanding that this is a new song with the same melody. This is a new song with the same rhythm behind it. This is showing us that what God is doing in Jesus is altogether new and final and ultimate, and yet it is consistent with what God has been doing for all time. It's consistent with God's redemption. Jesus Christ is not an outlier. He's not a plan B. He's not a branch off of what God promised to do. He is the culmination of everything God said would happen. That's the point of Mary's song and why it repeats all these redemptive reversals of the past. Now Mary's song, and we we call it that, we don't know if she sung it or not, but uh, we'll call it a song. It's often associated with Christmas We read it most often at Christmas, and the reason why is because it models the kind of heart that we as God's people are to have, especially as we approach Christmas, all throughout the year, but especially at Christmas. I think it does three things. The Magnificat, number one, serves as a reminder. It reminds us that life is about magnifying God, not ourselves. Second, the Magnificat is a warning. It warns us to seek and to pursue and to chase after the right treasure, not the wrong treasure. And then number three, Christmas calls us to hope in the God who keeps his promises. So I'm going to step us through this reminder, this warning, and this call. And this is the full message of Christmas that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And if we listen well and we apply it well, then we'll be in the right posture of worship as we begin to remember that Jesus took on flesh so that he could die for us. Now, she begins her praise personally by acknowledging what God has done in her life. Here's what she says. "'My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now from now on all generations will call me blessed.'" For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now the word magnify here is important. It's the, it's the very thing that names this song. It refers to praising someone's greatness, someone's glory, someone's magnitude, right? You think about that. It's it's making much of someone. It's exalting someone. It's glorifying someone because of some attribute or accomplishment. So to magnify someone, is just to acknowledge that they are great. And in saying this, Mary states the intention of her worship here. The intention of her worship is not to make much of herself. The intention of her worship is not to exalt herself and what God is doing in herself. The intention of her worship is to make much of God. Her soul makes much of Him, wants to enlarge Him, wants to make Him great in the eyes of others. Her spirit rejoices in her Savior. Isn't that interesting? That even here she acknowledges her need to be saved from sin. Even here she acknowledges her need to have a Savior. It's about His work in her life. That's the primary focus of her worship. Not what she does, not how great she is, not how venerable she is, but what God has done for her. That's the focus. Now the essence of all true worship is magnification. A making much of God and the great things that He has done. Now, I, I personally bear this critique about myself here. A person can come to church, we can sing the songs, we can read the scriptures, and yet all the while be singing to ourselves and magnifying ourselves. Even in singing worship songs, we could be wanting to highlight how great our tone and singing is. Even in preaching, I can be seeking to magnify. Don't you, don't you see how great of a preacher I am? Even coming to church, even our church attendance can be a magnification of the stuff. Don't you realize I vote for the right people, I do the right things, I pay taxes, and I go to church. My friends, true worship is about magnification of God, not of self. All Christmas long, we, see, we sing things like, "Oh come, oh come, let us adore Him, and yet... The the hypocrisy in our hearts is we're actually saying, "Oh come, O come, and adore me. May we not fall into that kind of posture. The Magnificat reminds us that true worship, worship that begins in the depths of the soul, worship that can honestly say, My soul, the deepest part of me, the dark depths of my heart, magnifies God because He is my Savior and He alone. Magnifying God's person and work does several things for your heart. First off, it proclaims that God is greater than all else. Magnification of God proclaims that God is greater than all else. What you make much of, what you magnify, what you exalt in, that thing is your God. That's the truth of all of this. Now, making much of my career... Myself, my reputation, my education, my possessions, my self image, my rights serves as evidence that I have allowed other things to occupy the throne of my heart. That I'm making other things larger, that I'm magnifying other things other than God. Man, we've got that nasty little personal pronoun my, 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 my. We are great self magnifiers. And yet, when we magnify God, it reminds us that He's great. He's better than all of those things. He's stronger. He's bigger. He's holier. He's more glorious than any one of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a self-proclamation that says, He is best. He is the most worthy. He is the most high. Nothing else compares. Nothing else ranks up. Nothing sits on the shelf with him. He is God alone. No one else can compare. That's what magnification should do. He is transcendent over everything else in life. Second, and this is one that we we tend to forget. When we magnify God, we not only confess God's greatness, we confess our smallness. Right When we magnify God, we are talking about how great God is. But that doesn't mean that we're talking about how great God is and also how great I am. Magnification is making, make, making much of God and making less of myself. Making much of God. That he would become greater and that I would become what? Less. That's the point of magnification. Mary understood this. She is not the hero of the story. She is not the one to whom all glory belongs. She is not the one to whom all veneration, she's not venerating herself here. She's venerating God and showing that he alone is worthy. If there's someone to be admired, if there's someone to be loved, if there's someone to be held dear, it is not her, it is God, because he's the great one. Mary acknowledged that by choosing her, God has not chosen the best of servants. God has not chosen the the most worthiest. God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That's what she says. God has looked upon the humble estate, not of a queen, not of mother God, but of her servant. For her to be used by God was a grace given to the humble, and so she refuses here to make much of herself. He is the God who saves... And she and we are those who are in need of saving. We are the damsels in distress. Have you ever thought about that this Christmas? Man, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I still daydream about what it would be like to make a touchdown with everybody cheering. Back from high school days, I haven't quite grown out of that. But man, don't we just drift into that so easily... We, just want, we want people to make much of us. We don't like it when they start talking a lot about other people or even a lot about themselves. We do. There's one thing everybody hates. We all hate it when people talk too much about themselves. And here's why we hate it. Because they're not talking enough about us. But magnification is this understanding that there's only one who really, truly deserves the focus of our, of our conversations, the focus of our adoration, the focus of the glory. And it's not us. It's Him. We're the weak ones. He's the mighty one who stands on behalf of the weak. So in this first stanza, Mary proclaims the, the, the appropriate posture of worship. The only appropriate posture of worship is not to stand tall and to profess our own strength and our own exaltation. That's not how we worship. We, we bow low, we humble, we make ourselves low because that's what we are. It's not just noble characters, right? It's not just, it's not just like it's a, it's a character quality that we can pick or choose. It's actually something that we must have. They're essential. Humility is essential for a relationship with God. We all need to be bought into that absolute truth. Humility is essential for a relationship with God. Proud people cannot have a right relationship with God. God says it all over Scripture. Psalm Psalm 138 verse 6 says this, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. But the haughty, the arrogant, the proud... He knows from afar. That's what he says in Psalm 138. So in other words, to have a close relationship with God, we must not boast, we must not exalt ourselves, we must not climb up the ladder, so to speak, to him. We must be low and know that we have a relationship with God because God comes down to us, not because we exalt ourselves up to God. There's a humility of helplessness here. There's a humility that acknowledges there's nothing I can do to bring myself to Him. He must come down, 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 down to the depths of humanity for me. That's what the gospel proclaims. So, we have a reminder here of what the right posture of worship is, but now we have a warning in this next stanza. Verses 46 through 50 serves as an introduction to the rest of Mary's song. So what begins as a personal praise turns now into a prophetic declaration of God's redemptive work through Christ. The next several verses, uh, verses 51 through 53 here, demonstrate the importance of pursuing the right treasure. We're all chasing after something in this room today. And Mary's song reminds us to be sure and chase after the right things. She reminds us that in the fallen world, People pursue all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things we want. There's all kinds of things that we're hoping for. There's all kinds of things we're clinging to. We're clinging to things like a, a personal power. To be seen as someone who's powerful, right? Or just powerful. To have a high self-esteem. That's a, that's a key word in our society. Oh, their self-esteem is low. They need a higher self-esteem. Everybody needs to be pursuing higher self-esteem. Social influence or popularity, material possessions, and so on. But the Magnificat warns us against pursuing any of those things. That none of those things is the right treasure to be chasing after. In her song, Mary knows that in the end, if we arrogantly pursue the wrong treasures, it will lead to our own brokenness, to our own Emptiness. And so, the warning is for people like me, who at times can be too arrogant to see that God is the true treasure, not my pride, not my power, and not my prosperity, the true treasure is God and God alone. So let's just walk through these. Let's look at first pride, a prideful self-esteem. Here's what she says in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Pride, no matter how small, sets us in opposition against God. Do we see how dangerous pride is? It doesn't matter how small it is. Pride, even an inch of pride, even an ounce of pride, is in opposition to God. It's a declared opposition against God, that He is not the greatest in this. That pride begins to set us on that trajectory. It's an anti-gospel sentiment for self. Pursuing a prideful self-esteem, for example to think of ourselves as higher, to think of ourselves as better, to think of ourselves as more self-sufficient, self-important, and don't you realize who I am? I, I, I'm not going to let you talk to me like that because you don't understand who I am. That kind of prideful self-esteem is nothing more than setting off on a trek to find our own glory. Nothing more than that. I'm not saying that you have to think bad about yourself, but I think to put it in terms of self-esteem, to esteem yourself great. I mean, if you just flip the words, to esteem, esteem self. This sounds wrong biblically, doesn't it? Who are we to esteem? We're to esteem God. The Egyptians did the same thing. They esteemed themselves themselves greatly. They were rich, they were powerful, they were mighty. And yet, Psalm 89:10 uses the same words as Mary's song, and it says, You crushed Rahab, that's Egypt like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with a mighty arm. So the psalmist here has Exodus in mind. He thinks how God crushed the arrogant serpent, Egypt, who who esteems itself, who boasts before God, and God reveals His power, His mighty arm, by crushing them. By crushing them. My friends, prideful people become mini-pharaohs. And pharaoh-like hearts get a pharaoh-like scattering. Have you ever just felt frustrated that people cannot seem to see how important you are? I mean, I've been here for five years, (laughs) and there is still only two families that bring me Reese's at Christmas. (laughs) I mean, surely by now, you know... You see how gifted I am, right? And yet that's what pride does. It builds us up in this Pharaoh-like self-kingdom building where we think so much about ourselves. We think about how high we should be esteemed. And secretly, and here's the devastating truth about this kind of heart, it secretly asks questions like this. Who is God that I should obey him? Who is God that I should make much of him? I mean, this is my sermon. I worked on it hard. I spent 12 hours writing it. I dug through the Greek and Hebrew. I mean, surely, surely it's about me now, right? That's what Pharaoh would think. And Pharaoh-like arrogance is dangerous because it, it begins to become transfixed on our own prideful desires about making ourselves like God, to exalt ourselves, to see ourselves lifted up. The problem of pursuing a prideful self-esteem, the problem of pursuing a proud look of yourself is that in its true colors, it's a pursuit of self and not of God. It's a pursuit of self-worth. It's finding your worth in yourself, not in God. There's nothing wrong with saying that you are worth something. But what adjective you put in front of that is extremely important. I am worthy not because I am worthy. I am worthy because God has declared me worthy. My worth is located in God's value, in God's grace, in God's mercy, not in myself. Self worth is the wrong place to be looking for self importance, it's the wrong pursuit. Timothy Keller uh, wrote a great book uh, called The Freedom of Self Forgetfulness. And here's what he writes, he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. So it's not thinking more of yourself, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. He goes on to add this, a truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person. Doesn't, not the self loathing and, oh no, you, you said I was pretty, I'm not really that pretty. You know, it's not, none of that. Okay, it's not self hating and it's not self loving. But a gospel humble person is someone whose ego is just like his or her toes. It's just there. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. In other words, the problem is not that we inflate our own ego, or that we work so hard to deflate our own, our own ego? The problem is, is that we're playing with our ego at all. That's the point of uh, that self-esteem brings us is in this pursuit of self-esteem. We're constantly measuring. You know, I, we either become too puffed up, or we take on a pseudo humility that wants everybody to see how small and how humble we are. But that's the problem. Isn't how puffed up your ego is or how deflated your ego is the problem is that you are paying attention to the ego at all just let it be god is the one that gives us worth god is the one who who determines our importance god is the one who has made much of us through salvation and now we make much of him in worship so friends be careful the pride in our hearts, and, and and this is something that's extremely dangerous right now. The pride in our hearts. You, you're listening to this. You're like, this is great, and I love Timothy Keller. You might you might even have read the book. Um, but immediately, if you're like me, if I were sitting where you're at, here's some thoughts I would have. Man, this is great stuff for my neighbor. <laughs> great stuff for the guy over on the other side of the church. Great stuff for the house next door, and even for you even more riskier cats, this is great stuff for my spouse. But in reality, the fact that we don't start with a look at ourselves, we don't start with an understanding that this this is a warning for us, primarily, me, individually, that itself reveals a secret, hidden pride. You might look humble to everybody else, you might look meek. I can can put on all the characteristics of a humble person. And yet, Mary says that God knows the, the pride in the thoughts of men's hearts. Does that make sense? I can fool everyone else that I'm humble. But God hears the secret whisperings in my heart. God hears the secret nudgings to proudful countenance and the self-esteem and to to find self-worth in myself through my preaching or through my pastoring or or through my godliness or through my my spiritual disciplines or my church attendance or my budget or whatever it is God hears those secret whisperings God knows what's inside of the heart he knows how desperately we pursue a, a, a high self-esteem. He knows your ambitions, your motivations, your cravings. He knows about your daydreams. You know, where, you know, those dreams where you suddenly drift off and you just think, how awesome would it be just to do something completely Jason Bourne-like right now? <laughs> and just for everybody to see it. I mean, he knows those secret intentions where we're subtly becoming the hero of our own story or fantasizing about being the hero of the day. He knows about all those. He knows that he hears the imaginary applause in your mind and the cheers that other people give you when you begin to think, what if they truly knew how great I was? Now, Paul gives a warning to those of us like me who is slow to think that that Mary surely is not talking about me but about my neighbor Paul, when he dealt with sin, when he dealt with accusations of, of sinfulness, or when he dealt with accolades of faithfulness, Paul refused to base his 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 faithfulness to the gospel on what other people said, whether good or bad. In 1 Corinthians 4, he tells them it makes little difference to them, whether to him, whether they think him faithful or unfaithful. It doesn't really matter, because at the end of the day... There's only one who judges faithfulness or unfaithfulness. There's only one who truly sees us rightly for who we really are. He he says this in verses 4 through 5. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment, whether good or bad. That's not just bad judgment. Don't call me good. Don't call me faithful. Don't tell me I'm running the race well. Don't tell me I'm failing in the race. Before the time, before the Lord comes. And here's why. The Lord who comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes. That that word also means desires of the heart. The Lord who discloses the desires of the heart and then to each one will receive his own commendation. Do you hear that? Man, what a warning for preachers like me. I can preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and I can be throwing out, man, look at how faithful I am. i preach 42 times this year. That's 10 pages per sermon. That's 420 pages of written stuff. It's great. I'm faithful. And yet, Paul warns, no, 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 there's one who's coming, and he sees the desires of the heart. He discloses what we really want, We can say that we want to glorify God. We can say that we're just living for God's praise. We can say that what we're doing is in worship to Him. But in reality, there is one who sees it for what it really is, who sees the status of your heart and what you truly want. So instead of foolishly applauding my own humility when I read this, what I think Mary actually wants us to do is to continue to lower and to, instead of assuming that we are proud, and instead of assuming that we are humble, to acknowledge that we are in absolute, continual, consistent dependence upon God. I mean, it goes back to Peter's words that we are to consciously humble ourselves. That's an ongoing act, to consciously humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Now in the next few lines, she moves from prideful self-esteem to pursuing power. Here's what she says. He has brought down the mighty. Uh, He has brought down the powerful. He has brought down those who have a a lot of influence from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble is evidence of God's authority and power. One of the most arrogant kings in all of human history, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, believed he stood on top of his palace and he said, look at what my hands have made. He was true. I mean, in, in all political aspects, this dude was the king of the world. Seriously, there had been no empire, no nation, no king that had been able to beat him. I mean, this guy has beaten off Egyptians. I mean, this is... This is king of the world type stuff here. Worldwide dictator. And yet he stands and then he has a dream. And in his arrogance, God reveals to him what's going to happen. So in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees his holy one coming down from heaven. And he sees Nebuchadnezzar, whose image like a tall, tall tree. So Nebuchadnezzar is the tall, tall tree. And it says birds from all over the heavens came and made their houses and the branches of the tree that the tree overshadowed the world. The tree's tall. It knows it's tall. It's mighty. No one has ever been able to cut down even a twig of this tree. And yet here comes the Holy One from heaven, and he says, cut it down. And great was the fall of the tree. And he cuts it down, and it leaves nothing but a dead stump Now, why would God do that? Why would would God cut down an arrogant Nebuchadnezzar like that? Well, here's why. So that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets sets over it the lowliest of men. So literally, God's saying here, I can cut down the greatest dictator that there is just to prove... That I rule in the world of men. That's what God shows when he brings down these mighty from the thrones. That's not the only way that he shows his power. He also does it by raising the poor. Here's what Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2. Totally different perspective. Hannah says that God raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap uh, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And here's why. Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. So you see what's happening here. This great reversal that happens when God brings down the mighty from thrones, when he exalts the poor and the humble, God is showing that the world belongs to him, not to us. The moment you get on top, the moment you become the most powerful, the moment you become the most influential, beware because that's the moment that the great reversal begins to show you just how unsovereign you actually are. I mean, I... I can say this as a parent, right? If you're a parent, you know this. You think you have everything right in line. They all know their chores, right? You have an order in your household. There's a way to do it. Man, it just seems like it's constantly frustrated. God gives us things in life. He humbles us and He exalts. He humbles and He exalts. Why? To show you that you're not king. He doesn't care how many Twitter followers you have. He doesn't care what title you bear in your job. The fact of the matter is the earth is the Lord's. The pillars on which the earth is built belong to him. He is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who will have eternal dominion, not you or I, No matter how much power I accrue, real power does not belong to the high and mighty. He can bring down tall trees like Nebuchadnezzar and he can make little uh, 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 conspicuous shoots like David's shoot, like Jesus, become the tallest tree in the garden. That's what he can do. He can bring down the tall tree and he can make the shoot the tallest tree on the mountain. And he does so to show that he alone is king. And so if you think that Choosing power is the right pursuit. Choosing influence is the right pursuit. Mary's song reminds you that the powerful are brought low to show that true power belongs to God and God alone. Now, one other wrongly pursued treasure that is especially applicable here at Christmas time when millions are getting cre- presents, and I know myself, my Amazon list has doubled in the last uh, two days. Um, Uh, So this is a word for me, but a wrongly pursued treasure would be wealth and prosperity. Wealth and prosperity, to find our satisfaction in worldly junk, to find our satisfaction on how much we have. Mary says that in his redemptive work, God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. Now, as always, the word rich doesn't just mean monetary rich, right? This isn't isn't just people who have a big house or a nice car, or they just simply have a lot more money than you. This is speaking of someone who, who does not recognize their hunger with God. This is someone that has a lot of stuff and doesn't realize how much they really need God. They're satisfied. I got everything I need. I don't need anything else right? That's these kind of people. They're like the rich young ruler who looks at their own righteousness, who looks at their possessions, and they start check marking off the list. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. And then they look at Jesus and say, what do I lack? They don't realize how empty they really are. Now the great reversal of it all is those who think they're full will be proven empty in the end. Those who hunger for God will be satisfied in the end. Those who have a craving for God Himself will be full, will be filled, will need will truly need nothing else. So this Christmas it asks us to, to consider where do we find satisfaction? How are you made full? Do you seek junk power faulty self-esteem fragile self-esteem that you feel good today and then tomorrow you get a cold and all of a sudden you feel bad about yourself again or do you pursue the Lord and the Lord alone who can empty who can end off those cravings the Lord who can satisfy who can fill your emptiness the Lord who can exalt you You don't have to exalt yourself. The Lord who knows your name, even if nobody else does. The Lord who knows your status, even if no one chooses to look at it on Facebook. The Lord who loves you. The Lord who came down from heaven to seek you and purchase you with his own blood. My friends, the arrogance of it all And this is really the the great divider of humanity. There are some people who simply don't think they need God. Christmas time is a perfect time in worship to acknowledge that we need God. He does not need us. We need God. We are hungry and empty without Him. Now it leads us to the final psalm, the final stanza of the song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So now she ends exactly where she began. It's all about God. God has intervened. God has stepped in. Israel has not saved itself. Israel needed help. God has helped Israel. We are saved because God is a God who does not forget his promises. We are saved because God is a God who can remember generations back when he stood before Abram and said, Abram, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's a God who remembers back to David and says, David, I will give you a son who will reign on the throne forever and his dominion will be eternal. He's a God who can remember past all of that all the way to the very first sin in the garden before Adam and Eve were sent out and, and remember that he promised a serpent-crushing victor whose heel would be bruised for us so that we could have the garden again. My friends, do you bask in that this Christmas? And we're going through so much stuff, aren't we? There's a lot going on in life. And, and it, it hurts. There's a lot of pain in this room. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of mourning in this room. There's a lot of sadness in this room. And yet the Magnificat reminds us, it calls us, beckons us to praise the God who keeps His promises. To praise the God who redeems and will fill all the earth with the knowledge of himself. Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. He died, he went low. He died the death of a slave on a cross, died the worst kind of death known to mankind at that day, died at the hands of sinful men, was buried in a tomb and rose again just to bring you up to heaven with him just so that your name could now be attached with him, so that you could be seated in the heavenly places, as Ephesians said, and to receive the kindness of God for all eternity. My friends, my only hope for you this Christmas is that you have a right estimation of yourself and a right estimation of how great God is. We are small, we are hungry, we are poor, we are lowly, we are broken, we are blind. Jesus said that he has come, he was anointed to proclaim good news, not to the rich, to the poor, not to those who see themselves as strong and mighty conquerors, but to those who understand that they are captives, not to those who think they have absolutely clear sight. But those who understand they are blind. He came to those not who have bulletproof skin, but to those who are oppressed. My friends, He came for the sick. It's okay for you to cough at Christmas. Be sick. He came for you. Be weak. He came for you. Be lame. He came for you. Be blind. Don't be ashamed of that because Jesus stepped into the depths of darkness to redeem that. That is his Christmas gift to us, to raise us up with him. Let's not dig ourselves out of the pit because you can't. The Magnificat tells you the right posture is not this high, noble, sharp nosed look at the gospel. But it's a low bowing to Christ. Knowing that there's nothing in us that is great. Knowing that there's nothing in us that is mighty. Knowing that we are the weak. We are not the hero of the story. And in that kind of praise, we magnify. Magnify God. And we let ourselves become small. Let's pray. Father God, in my weak and stumbling words, Father, I've done my best, Lord, to present the gospel. Father, I pray that this Christmas, that Mary's words will continue to resound in the hearts of people here, Father, that they will reason with the clear words of scripture, Father. Lord, not just their thoughts, not just their feelings, not just what they want to believe, Father, but what has been revealed in the scriptures that you have given us about yourself. So, God, we just ask you, Lord, to be with us as we continue in worship, Lord. And may this Christmas be a time of sweet worship that we have never before known, that we may worship lower and bow lower and understand that Jesus is the great King. And that is because of him and what he has done that we are saved. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.